I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Okay, uh, this is Javier Cercas, world's greatest novelist, and you're very, very privileged indeed to have him with you tonight, almost as much as I am. I'm Paul Preston, I'm a historian, and um, I'm here to dismantle the sort of thing that he does, because none of it's true, because after all, he's a novelist, and that's what, <laughs> that's what novelists do. Since I guess that most of you won't have read the book... Because if you had, you might not be here. But anyway, since I assume most of you won't have read the book, I'm going to ask Javier to start, if you will, by doing a short reading, but also putting that reading into context. So that will give you all an idea of what the book's about. And I hope it will give you a first taster of why you must buy a copy. And then, then we'll talk about it a bit. It's all okay. yours. Thank you, Paul. Uh, first of all, I would like to tell a tiny story I always tell here in England. Uh, the first time Roman Jacobson went to Harvard, he was welcomed by the president of the university, who told him, uh, Mr. Jacobson, somebody told me that you speak 14 languages. And Jacobson said, yeah, it's true, but I speak all of them in Russian, because he was Russian. Okay, so I, I speak English, as you see, but I speak English in in Spanish. Paul understands me very well, but I don't know you. Anyway, thank you, Paul, for being here. And what I'm going to do is something dangerous. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read uh, from my last book. It's much more difficult to read than to speak, as you know. Well, maybe in, in another language, especially. But anyway, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do it. Anyway, the book is uh, tells a story of uh, a young boy He's 16 years old. In 1978, I was seven, 16 years old in 1978, and, and he lives in uh, Girona, or, uh, which is a tiny city close to the frontier, French frontier, and to, to Barcelona also. And uh, he lives exactly where I lived at that moment, close to the border of the city, marked by a river. And uh, this boy is also like me, you know, middle-class immigrant from the south of Spain. There were a lot of immigrants in the 50s and 60s to the north of Spain, as you know, maybe. 
And, well, he's a middle-class boy. And one day, he crosses the frontier marked by the river. And he engages with a gang of, well, uh, dangerous boys of uh, delinquents. Juvenile delinquents, I yeah. think we'd say. Yeah. Juvenile delinquents. Uh, there were a lot of them in Spain at that moment. And his life changes. I mean, that summer, he discovers this, this first part of the book is what you call, in, with a German word, a um, Bildungsroman, right? St- the story of how uh, a young boy discovers the essential things of life, meaning love, sex, uh, death, and that thing we call maturity, which nobody knows what it is, but, well, we have an idea. In fact, the second part of the book, so 20 years after uh, the first part, uh, we discover that maturity is something, it's a fiction, it's, that doesn't exist, I haven't discovered that. And, well, anyway, and the past hasn't passed and everything changed. Anyway, what I'm going to read is a passage this guy, as I said, engages with this gang of dangerous people, and they do a lot of bad things, like robbing banks, for instance, and things like that. The last bank they rob, the police uh, knows that, that they're going to rob it, and they wait for them, and so it's a total disaster. The police catch them, except this boy, this young boy, this young middle-class boy, uh, he's miraculously he escapes from the police, and, uh, and after that he goes to uh, the only place where he can go, which is home. Of course, his family doesn't know that he has been in all this terrible, uh, violent mess. And that's what I'm going to, to read. When I went in, meaning in his house, my whole family was eating. My mother and my sister cried out to high heaven, when they saw my t-shirt soaked in blood. My father reacted differently. Without a word, he took me to the bathroom, and while I explained to all of them that I'd fallen off a motorcycle, he examined my wound. Once he'd examined it, my father asked my mother and sister to leave the bathroom. This is not from a fall, he said coldly when they left, pointing at my arm. Go on, tell me what happened. I tried to insist on my lie, but my father interrupted me. Look, Ignacio, it's the name of the young boy, young young guy. Look, Ignacio, he said, I don't know what mess you've got into, but if you want me to help you, you have to tell me the truth. Without affection, he added, if you don't want me to help you, you can leave. I understood he meant it, that he was right, and that no matter how badly he reacted to the truth, it would be a thousand times worse if the police arrested me. Besides, by then, I was coming down hard off the adrenaline and was so scared it was as if I injected myself in one single shot with complete awareness of the danger I'd exposed myself to in my four eyes of the past months. I agreed. As best I could, I told my father the truth. His reaction calmed me down a little, almost disconcerted me. He didn't yell at me, didn't get furious. He didn't even seem surprised. He just asked me a few very specific questions. 
When I thought he'd finished it, I asked, what are we going to do? He didn't even take a second or two to think. Go to the police station, he answered. A chill made my legs go weak. You're going to give me up? I asked. Yes, he answered. You said you'd help me, I said. That's the best thing I can do to help you, he said. Dad, please, I begged. My father pointed at my wound and said, wash that off and let's get going. Then he left the bathroom and while my mother came back in and washed the wound with the help of my sister, I heard him speaking on the phone. He spoke for quite a while, but I didn't know what about or with whom because the telephone was in the front hall and my mother and my sister were harassing me with questions. They were also trying to comfort me because I had started to cry. Back in the bathroom, my father asked my mother to pack a suitcase for him and for me. I looked at him with my eyes full of tears. My father looked at me as if he just recognized me or as if he was about to burst into tears as well. And at that moment, I knew he changed his mind and that he wasn't going to turn me in. Where are you going? My mother asked. Pack the suitcase, my father repeated. I'll explain later. In silence and without looking at my face again, my father finished cleaning out the wound, disinfected and bandaged it. When he finished, he left the bathroom and for a couple of minutes, I heard him speaking to my mother. He came back to the bathroom and said, Let's go. I followed him without questions. First, we went to Frances Urana Street and parked outside the door of a building where a close family friend lived, a lawyer from my parents' hometown called Eugenio Redondo. My father got out of the car and asked me to wait, and while I waited, I deduced that it had been Redondo he'd spoken to on the phone after I told him what happened. After a while, my father returned to the car alone, and we crossed the city and left it by the highway to France. On the way, he told me we were going to a summer home that Redondo had just bought in Culera, a remote coastal village. He assured me that if the police went looking for me at home on Caterina Albert, something which was highly probable, Caterina Albert is his home, my mother would not hide our whereabouts. He explained in detail what I had to tell the police in the event, also highly probable, that they came to Colera to interrogate me. What I had to say was, in short, that we'd spend a week there, just the two of us, stretching out the last days of the summer holidays. An hour later, we arrived in Culera. The village streets were deserted. Redondo's house was very close to the sea. As soon as we got, we got in, my father started unpacking our things and arranging them in the wardrobes, or rather, disarranging them and messing up the dining room, the kitchen, the bathroom, and the bedrooms, so it would look like a house where we'd been living for several days. Then he went shopping, and I stayed in one of the rooms, lying on the bed and watching a tiny portable television. I hadn't recovered from the fear of the, or the exhaustion. I fell asleep. When my father woke me up, I didn't know where I was. Someone had turned off the TV 
and the light in the room was on. My arm didn't hurt. I vaguely sensed that it was nighttime. There's someone out there who wants to talk to you, my father whispered. He'd crouched down beside me. Running his hand on my other arm, he added, It's a policeman. He didn't say anything else. He stood up, left the room, and Inspector Cuenca came in. This is an interview. The whole book is a series of interviews. So the interviewer asked Ignacio Cañas, who is the main character, uh, asked him, did you know him, policeman? Of course. And he knew me. We'd often seen each other in the district, and he'd interrogated me at least a couple of times. That night, he interrogated me, too. Standing beside the bed, without asking me to get up, I had sat up just a bit. I was sitting on the mattress with my legs flexed and my back leaning against the wall. He asked the predictable questions, and I gave him the answers my father had told me to say. When I was speaking, I read in the inspector's eyes that he wasn't believing me. He didn't believe me. When the interrogation was over, he told me to get dressed, to pack some clothes in a bag that I had to go with him. I'll wait outside, he said, and walked out of the room. I realized that all was lost. I don't know exactly what happened during the minutes that followed. I know that fear suffocated me, and I didn't obey the inspector and didn't get up off the bed. I know that I battled the imminence of the catastrophe by imploring in silence that all that had happened over the past three months hadn't happened or had been a dream, and that I implored as if I were crying or as if I were praying, begging for a miracle. No miracle occurred, although what did happen in the, is the closest thing to a miracle that has happened in my life. And do you know what it was? What? asked the interrogator. Nothing. At some point, the door to my room opened and the inspector Cuenca appeared. Naturally, I thought it was the end. But it wasn't. In fact, it was the beginning. Because what happened was that inspector Cuenca just stood there, silent, standing still, looking at me for a couple of endless seconds. And then he left. Nothing else happened that night. Inspector Cuenca slammed the door on his way out. And after a moment, my father came back into the room and sat down beside me on, on the bed. His face was as rigid as wax. As for me, at that moment, I realized I was sitting on top of sheets that were drenched in sweat. I asked my father what had happened, and he said nothing. I asked him what was going to happen. Nothing, he repeated. Although I had just woken up, I had the feeling of not having slept for months. I must have looked it because my father had go to sleep. Obedient, as if I just suffered the sudden regression to childhood, I slid down and stretched out, not caring about the dampness of the sheets. 
And the last thing I noticed before sinking into sleep was my father getting up off the bed. Thank you. I said at the beginning that I thought probably most of you won't have read Outlaws, as it's, as it's called in English, but I think a lot of you may very well have read two of the other books of Javier's that have been translated into English. That's to say, Soldiers of Salamis and Anatomy of a Moment, both of which, of course, were enormous successes worldwide, um, and particularly in the English-speaking world, as, as well, of course, as uh, in Spain. One of the things... Uh, Anatomy of an Instance, as you all probably know, is effectively a historical account of the moment in question. The instant in question was the military coup on the 23rd of February 1981 in Spain, but written like a novel. I mean, in the best sense, written like a novel, although historically extremely sound. Soldiers of Salamis, of course, was, was a mixture. The central story was fictional, but it actually concerned real figures. Now, in theory... This book, Outlaws, is a fictional work. Now, one of the things I'm going to come back to later on is really, is it? Why, why don't I do that now? Is it? Because, effectively, the central character, Ignacio Cañas, is you, isn't it? Born the same time as you. His family came from the same place as you. His experiences in going to the Bafon, you know, the, the awful housing estates made up of these shelters for immigrants, something you did. So is it really an autobiography? And I'd love to say here that, uh, in fact, I was with a gang robbing banks when I was <laughs> 16 years old, but it, it is not truth. I guess we'll sell some more books, but it's not true. <laughs> of course it's autobiographical, but the point is that all novels are autobiographical. All of them. Without exception. That does not mean that the events in the book are real, so I'm telling, you know, my life. This means that the uh, raw material that I use, as all novelists use, is our, you know, our life, our experience, also what has happened to me, but also what has not happened to me, which forms part of my biography also, my frustrations, my dreams, my readings, my everything. Vargas Llosa says something which is absolutely exact. He says, writing a novel is like a reverse striptease. So it's a normal striptease. We know what is normal striptease, right? The girl or the boy. Is Speak there. for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> a reverse striptease is the girl or the guy are there without clothes, and then they begin, they begin to dress, and they, they begin to mask their body, and then finally we cannot recognize them because they are with black glasses and, and you know, with a hat or something like that. Well, that's writing a biography. But the real experience, the raw material, the, the nude is, is there. So, of course, it's, it's autobiographical, but it's also another thing. But it's, this is all the books. I mean, The Anatomy of a Moment, uh, which is apparently is not a book about myself, is, of course, an autobiographical book. Absolutely. Totally. I mean, of course, the main character is named Adolfo Suárez, or one of your characters also, which is Santiago Carrillo, or things like that. But I'm talking about my, my experience. I'm talking about, about something which is very important for me. Writing a novel is always, it's always the same thing. But this is not my case. This is all the cases I know. 
uh, it's a what if. You begin with something called what if. So, let's put the best novel I know, which is called Don Quixote de la Mancha. One day, one day, this guy called Miguel de Cervantes, which is incredibly Spanish, one day he says, what if I... Well, I, very difficult for me to, to say it. Okay, anyway. What if what I, if I was were? not... What, what, what if I were? were? What were. if I were? I wish I were, yeah. What if I were... I mean, what, I, what if I'm not what I am? What if I, I'm not in, in Lepanto and was, you know, my, my teacher was Lopez de Hoyo and I was in Lepanto and I was in Argel, you know, as a prisoner and I'm a total disaster as a, uh, a total loser as a writer, which was Cervantes, of course. But what if my whole life had been in a tiny, tiny place in La Mancha reading uh, novelas de caballerías, chivalric novels? What, what if? And then he begins to imagine. There begins El Quixote. Does it mean that Don Quixote is Cervantes? The answer is obvious. Yes. But Cervantes is not only Don Quixote. It's Don Quixote, Sancho Panza, and all the characters in the book. Uh, because they are blood of his blood, and right? They are products of his imagination. In this sense, this novel, of course, is autobiographical. But all novels are. I call it hypothetical lives so one of my hypothetical lives is being you know a robber bank robber and a lawyer and things like that we cannot live all our lives Paul and fiction it's very useful for that we can live in fiction what we we haven't lived in reality well it's interesting I mean if we stick for a moment with anatomy of a of a moment which deals with something that we've both written about I mean I as a historian and actually, and I say it quite sincerely, you do it much better than I do. But one of the things, if you're a historian, you want to appeal to an audience in the same way as a novelist wants to appeal to an audience. Absolutely. If you're not readable, nobody's going to read you. And one of the things that you want to do is to get into the heads of the characters. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so here's a case. In the case of Anatomy of an Instant, of a moment, we're talking about real characters, the the colonel of the civil guard who made the military coup, the, the various political individuals who were involved, the king of Spain, you know, of whom I've written a, a biography and so on. And what's superb about anatomy is how well you do something, which I try to do but I don't do as well, which is to get into the heads of the characters. So in that sense, the ability to get into the heads is actually the novelist, but there's an element of imagination there. You, know, sure. you, you can't, as a historian, know that somebody walked into the Cortes and started firing a machine gun. That's fact. But, but what was going on in their head, that's imagination on, on the part of, of the writer. But in that sense, going back to what you said a minute ago, it's, of course it's true that all good novels, I mean, you know, every novel written by Dickens has a huge amount of... Dickens' humanity, of, of Dickens' sensations, sensibilities, and so on. But they're not all autobiographical. I mean, in that sense, they're autobiographical, but there are ones like, say, Barnaby Rudge or Tale of Two Cities, which clearly have involved a bit of research. Sure. In one case, research on the French Revolution, in another case, research on the Gordon Riots. Now, all of the three novels of yours, or sorry, three books of yours that have been published in the UK, all have involved... Research Obviously, Anatomy of an Instant involved very significant historical research. In the case of Soldiers of Sal Salamis, as it's called in English, 
there's quite a lot of research into the historical characters as well as historical types, which is also the case. But even in this book, you've got three central characters. The one who I'm accusing you of basing on yourself, that's Ignacio Cañas. There's a girl, Terry, and there's a sort of up-and-coming gangster figure, El Zarco, who is actually, I think, fairly obviously based on a real such character, known in Spanish as a kinky, but it's got nothing to do with the English word kinky. Uh, Un kinky basically is a sort of a gangster from the slums in a way. And the character of El Zarco is based on a real kinky called El Vaquilla. And I think I've read articles in which you say that he wrote memoirs, which you, which you used. There's a book about him that you use, and you've done a lot of research. So it's not entirely coming from your soul. I mean, one of the things that historians often say, you know, oh, you know, it's easy to write a novel, you could do it sitting in the bath. I mean, obviously the paper would get wet, but <laughs> leaving, leaving that aside. But it's not actually the case. You do research. So it's autobiographical in the sense of what you put into the feelings and into the heads of the characters, their motivations, the way they interact. But there's also a lot of real historical research. What I'm going to say is very important. There's not such a thing as a pure fiction. It doesn't exist. And if it existed, it would have the... Kafka? Le- Kafka? No? no Metamorphosis? Of course, of course not. I mean, what? Borges. I mean, he was turned into a beetle. No, well, he was a beetle, in fact. <laughs> oh, <okay>. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, think of Shakespeare. Everything comes from history. Everything. What we call fiction, reality is the, the gas of fiction. Poor fiction is nothing. What is, what is poor fiction? Uh, Kafka, but all there in everything, his angst, his fear, he's Gregor Samsa, of course. And he's Ka, of course. And he's everything, he's everybody in there. It's always a mixture of fiction and reality, always. From Homer to the last writer. And it's the quality of, the, of this mixture, of what we make with this mixture, is what we call a novel or whatever. But you, you've said one thing. This is very important. All characters, I mean, Madame Bovary, uh, Don Quixote, everything is based in his own experience, on, in the experience of others. That's really clear. But you said one thing which is absolutely related to that. I don't think that you and me or the historian and the novelist who works with history. First of all, I began to work with history really late in my life, in the 40s. Well, Soldados de Salamina, which is a book I published when I was 39. Before that, my books were just, you know, present, present, present. And in Soldados of Salamis, I make a big discovery for me, which is, what's this book about? We can say that this book is about a young boy like myself. In fact, in that book, the main character is called Javier Cercas. It's not myself, but it's called Javier Cercas. Anyway, and uh, this boy, who is like my generation, meaning we thought we Spanish people at that time, in the 90s, we thought that, you know, civil war, who cares about civil war? Civil war was something so alien and so uninteresting and so remote, and we were fed up with the uh, civil war. We didn't want to hear about that. We were literally fed up. I mean, there were so many books, so many novels, so many films. We didn't want to hear about that. We wanted to be, you know, Europeans, meaning Almodovar, blah, 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 whatever you want. This guy 
through this investigation, this cast on a tiny, tiny, and forgotten, as you know, episode of the, the end of the Civil War, he discovers one thing which is very important for me and for him and for the book and for the rest of my books. That past is not something that is there in, in the books, in the, in the archives. In, past is, is the dimension of the present. Paul, I have the impression, I don't know what you think about it, that we live, in fact, I, I wrote an article recently called, no, but I, I haven't published the, the article, okay. Uh, <coughs> oh, but you wrote it. No, it's, yeah, wrote it. it's called The Dictatorship of the Present. I have the impression that the uh, overwhelming power of the mass media in our society right now, I mean, mass media create reality, not only reflect reality, but create it. It has very good effects, but... Uh, really bad effect which is make things to people that only with present we can understand present and this is false without the past and especially with this recent past we cannot understand present because this past let's say the civil war is a part of the present is a dimension of the present and without that it is impossible to understand that and so from that moment on my books talk about not the past I mean I don't write historical novels I hate that label I write about the relationship of the past and the present, of this big present, which includes the past. I love that sentence by Faulkner. He says, past is not dead. It's not even past. No, it's present. It's still present. It's working here. This guy in the uh, Salamis, what he discovers is that the Civil War is not, it's not like the Battle of Salamis. It's, it's living the Civil War. He's there because of the Civil War because of this past that so remote for him, etc. Okay, so uh, from that moment on, it's true, my books have history in their core sometimes. But I think you're, he's, well, one of the most respected historians on Spanish history especially. Uh, everybody reads his books. He's a best-selling author, in fact, in Spain. I don't think that we are in competition. I don't I think don't so. I think that our work... No, no, no. Not in competition in the sense... No, no, no. <laughs> no, in the sense that what I do is different from what you do. For instance, you talk about imagination. And when we talk about imagination, of course, we remember E.H. Carr's definition of history. How we say that in English? Okay. La reconstrucción imaginativa del pasado. Uh, the imaginative reconstruction of the past. The imaginative reconstruction of the past. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It, this, is, this is imagination. This is not fantasy. Okay, we need imagination to bring the past to the present. This is not inventing things. <laughs> this is just try to imagine how was that with the documents we have. But I am freer uh, than you are. That's the, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You cannot do what I do. Exactly, exactly. You cannot. You do that, you're wrong. I don't know. <laughs> so I know, I, can, I know. I can imagine. I can do that. And you cannot do that. You are a, histor well, a historian. I am a novelist. It's different. And I can say, for instance, what you cannot say. I can say... I can imagine that Suarez, Suarez was Adolfo Suarez, the prime minister, the architect of transition, uh, which was the main character in the anatomy of a moment. I can say, well, let's imagine what this guy thought when he was there in his bench, when the ballots were, you know, in the parliament and he was staying in his bench, not looking for hide, you know, as everybody did. I can imagine that. I can try to imagine that. I, you know, I can speculate with that, and I can try to, as you said, enter, go into the uh, mind of this guy. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But if, I, if my imagination as novelist is good, maybe my conjectures are, you cannot do that. 
I mean, I, I, I don't think that. So we, our words are complementary. Uh, indeed, I agree totally with that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Although... I think there's probably a bit more imagination than in what I do than, than you might give it credit for, because obviously... You know, the worry do- me. I'm, I'm worried now. <laughs> you know, for historians, the obsession with documents, documents only take you so far. The people say, oh, you, know, you don't want to believe interviews or you don't want to believe people's memoirs. Well, how are documents that different? You know, it depends what the document is and so on. Inevitably, it seems to me anyway, I mean, in my books, even when they're not ostensibly a biography, so I wrote the biography of Franco or the King of Spain, but I also have written books which are collections of short biographies, and even in books which are not obviously biographies, I'm obsessed with getting the characters right, insofar as I can, and that's where there's an element where, obviously, I can't speculate as much as you do, but I can can speculate that somebody did something out of ambition, even though... Absolutely. They'd written, to take the case of Carrillo, 20 books of memoirs saying he did it for the good of humanity, you know, that he killed all his friends for that reason. Well, I think it was probably for another reason. But one thing... But my freedom is larger than yours. Oh, indeed. That's the it, point. No, I know, I know. That's and, the point. And I'm I mean, going can... somewhere with this. <laughs> so, you have freedom, but... Yeah, absolutely. In absolute agreement. Now, the thing is, in Anatomy of a Moment, you use that freedom... And I, as a historian, read you, and you know this because we did a similar event to this when it came out. I, on reading that, was thinking, yeah, absolutely. It just felt right to me. I'd done probably more research on it than you because it's my job, and it just felt right. You know, so, so, so far, so good. I want to move on a little bit to the fact that one of the things that probably isn't so well known here, there has been... A huge avalanche of books on the Spanish Civil War. There's probably more books on the Spanish Civil War, certainly proportionally, but maybe in absolute terms, than there are on the Second World War. It seems crazy, but, you know, there's probably 30,000 books on the Spanish Civil War, maybe more. And in recent years, there's been an absolute avalanche of novels based in the Spanish Civil War, some of which are truly dreadful. Some of them are unspeakable, they're so bad. But there's stuff that's, that's quite good. Now, almost everyone, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but some of the most distinguished novelists of today in Spain, Eduardo Mendoza, for instance, has written a book based in the Spanish Civil War. 
Almudena Grandes. I'm not sure if she's been... I know her, her erotic Some, book, uh, The Ages of Lulu, was published in, the, in English. I'm not sure about her historical novels, but she's published a series of novels about the Spanish Civil War. Now, I wanted to ask you about this, because obviously you've read them. <laughs> yeah. not, not, uh, maybe you've read more than I OK, well, the point I'm going to make that I want you to respond to is this, that what she does say, one of the novels is called Inés y la Alegría. Have you read that one? No. Oh, OK, OK, well, I'm not going to tell you the story. We'll be here all night, because it's an 800-page novel. <laughs> but it's basically about the end of the Civil War, just after the Civil War, and she creates the atmosphere of what it was like for the exiles, the, the, the Spaniards who'd been in the French resistance. You know, I know there are still people who think there were French people in the French resistance, but actually, as we both know, the French resistance was the Spanish Republican Army. But anyway, when she's talking about... We are not in France, have we? In, oh, I say, it, I say it every time I go to France. Don't worry. Don't no, worry. no, no, no. I know, I, feel, I know, but... I, I, feel, I, man, I eh? feel the need to ingratiate myself with the French <laughs> at every turn. But anyway, so the thing is, when she's dealing with what, what it's like to have been the wife of, of someone, uh, you know, a family exiled and all the problems of bringing up children, you know, the, the general stuff is superb, absolutely superb. But she includes real people. Now, I said a minute ago that when, obviously, Anatomy of a Moment is all about real people... And I agree, everything you said, I, I could corroborate everything that you say. Now, in her case, when she deals with real people, I'm tearing my hair out going, no, no, there is no way he would have said that. There is no way she would have done that. And then what? I mean, I kind of feel that there should be a ban on novelists using real people. I mean, by give them another name, you know, so, OK, you want to write about El Vaquilla, but you call him El Tharco, great. You say what you like. Yeah. That's where your freedom comes in. But if you decide that you're going to present someone as a pederast who isn't, or a paedophile or whatever, and they're not, that's not on. Okay, Paul, this is very, very, very important and very complex because what I think is that every novel has its own rules. And that's the problem. Meaning, every novel has to deal with everything, meaning for instance, history, real characters, in its own way. And the novelist must found its way. And, of course, it depends on the talent of the novelist. Mixing real characters with fictional characters is not, you know, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, everything. is full of, Of course, they are good. Of course, the, the, the bad novelists do it in an awful way, but the good ones do it in a very Homer, right? The classical literature, El Quixote, it's full of real characters also. So it's not something that we invented. I insist, pure fiction is it's a fiction. It doesn't exist. It's always a myth. And if it existed, it wouldn't be absolutely nothing, no interest. It is interesting because it's a mixture of reality because reality fools fiction with our hopes, our reality, our humanity. And that's, that's, that's the most important thing. And it would take a long time to explain that. But, but I can put an example, very, very easy example. Okay, this novel, Outlaws, is for me, it's like, it's a return to fiction. It's poor fiction in the sense that there's no real character in there. But compare, for instance, or my comparison, Soldiers and Salamis and The Anatomy of a Moment. What happens with Soldiers and, and The Anatomy of a Moment? They are apparently similar, 
and totally they are the contrary at the same time. Apparently similar because they deal with a tiny moment in history, meaning in Soldiers of Salamis, a remote episode of civil war in which a fascist uh, ideologue named Rafael Sanchez Mazas is, uh, escapes a firing squad and is saved by a, a Republican soldier. In the case of uh, the anatomy moment, a tiny moment, a tiny gesture, I would say. In the case of uh, Salamis, the, the gesture of, of a Republican soldier that saves, spares the life of this fascist. In the other case, uh, is the moment in which Adolfo Suarez stays in his place when, when the ballots go around him in uh, 1981 in the Spanish parliament during the coup d'etat. In this sense, they are similar, but in the, the mechanism, the rules of the game, the rules of the novel are totally opposite. Why? Because the nature of the material I have is exactly the contrary. Okay, in the case of Soldier Salamis, we have this tiny episode surrounded by obscurity, by night, by nothing, because we don't know nothing about this episode except what I investigated. I mean, we knew very few things. And fiction could go there to illuminate the obscurity. So with the instruments of history or journalism, so investigating the truth, the facts, the factual truth, you could go till here. And then the rest was night, the rest was obscurity, darkness. So then with fiction, pluck, you illuminate that. This is the reason why the mixture of reality and fiction. The case of the atom of a moment is exactly the contrary, because as you know very well, and maybe you all know, this is the uh, coup d'etat 1981 in Spain, is the most known, well-known moment in Spanish history, because it was the cameras, TV cameras were there. And it's a moment, it's only comparable to, this is very serious, the Kennedy, Kennedy's assassination. It's the same thing. You know, everybody knows about it, this book begins when, when I see in the 25th anniversary of the coup d'etat, I see the images of the uh, putschists entering the Guardias Civiles, entering the parliament, shooting. We Spanish see these images twice a week, at least, in the TV. Yeah, I mean, every, every day, like, like the Americans see the Kennedy assassination every day. But that day, 25th anniversary, imagine newspapers full of things, I mean, the radio, the TV, 25th anniversary, okay, well, great. I was there reading everything. I, I, I wrote an article for a La, La Repubblica Italian article explaining my experience of that day. And that was at 11 o'clock, uh, uh, TV, uh, uh, drinking whiskey. At that time, I, I drank whiskey. And once more, the Guardia Civil is entering the parliament and shooting it. I said, well, one thing that I've, se I've seen thousands of times, like all Spanish people, there are three guys that stay in their places. That's very strange. Why? Why that? Why these guys, precisely? And why they do that? Because the normal thing would be to do what the others did, to die for cover. I, personally, I would go to the basement because it was really dangerous. I mean, of course, it's a tiny place. And I said, why, why this? Why, what is the meaning of that? And especially, what is the meaning of the gesture of Adolfo Suarez, which was, for me, was a bastard. I mean, who was a social climber, a fascist, who came from the regime, you know, Franco's regime, and blah, blah, blah. I said, what the hell is doing this guy, who is the main character in the film? He's in the center of the image, you know, like this. I work out of obsessions. So I began to work, I read everything, or to formulate in a complex way this question. That's why I, I, I write novels, or I write books. 
three years after reading everything on this subject, after talking about hundreds of people, a lot of people, people who were there, reading everything, I, I had written a novel, you know, a mixture of fiction and reality, like Soldados or like other novels. And that, at that moment, I discovered that it didn't ring true. I had this manuscript. It didn't ring true. I had two options. One, commit suicide, and the other one, to go to holidays with the family. Because it, it didn't work. Three years after beginning. Can, can you imagine that? So I didn't commit suicide. I went with holidays with, with the family, which is uh, when you are in crisis, you should go holidays with the family. And I read, I read the first sentence of what, was, what is finally the book. The Anatomy Moment, which was an article by Umberto Eco saying, according to a poll, 25% of Britons, of people from UK, think that Winston Churchill is a fictional character. <laughs> I read that, and I said, well, that's it. That's it. That's the mistake I made. Because that coup d'etat 23rd February 1981, is an enormous fiction. In the same sense that this is an enormous fiction, a collective fiction, Kennedy's assassination. In the sense, first of all, it's the point, the exact point, where all the demons, the devils of our recent past converge. You know, we were Europeans, 1981, Spain, a democracy, uh, blah, 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 everything perfect. And then this guy with the moustache, with the, this black hat, like a character in Garcia Lorca poem. Incredible. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, it was like, like past coming to the present again. Our most awful past. In Spain, as Paul knows very well, the Spanish national sport is not, is not football, as people think here in, in the UK and England. It's, it's civil war or coup d'etat. That's our national sport, in fact. <laughs> you know, it's a fiction because during 25 years, it has been wrapped, this event, in lies, fictions, theories, crazy theories, half lies, etc., etc., etc. Why? There is not, not one book. There was not one book on the coup d'etat by a historian. And the answer is very easy, as you know very well. The answer is there are no documents. And as far as there are no documents, we, we historians cannot and who wrote the story of this coup? Journalists. And I love journalism, but serious journalism, not books written in five days. Instant book, they call it. And so enormous amounts of fiction, of theories, as far as there are no documents, you can say whatever you want on the coup d'etat. You can say that uh, was organized by the Queen of England. No problem. And it has been said, as you know very well. Uh, you can say whatever you want. Because public imagination is wonderful. I mean, you can imagine whatever you want. The, the point was that my book was wrong and it didn't ring true because I was trying to write fiction on fiction. And that was a mistake. That was redundant. That was literally irrelevant. And what I, what I should do is the contrary, to write the reality. So to stick to the fact. And that's why the book which is, in my opinion, a novel. It's not fiction. I, I don't invent one single fact. I mean, everything has happened. I can imagine what Adolfo Suarez thought, but I, there is not a single fact imagined. I wanted to stick to the fact, to disembody 
the reality to desenterrar. I, 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 I don't take up. <laughs> take up from you know all these this bunch of fictions of half lies of and that's why the book sticks to reality. So the rules of the anatomy are exactly the opposite of soldiers' salamis. I couldn't use fantasy. I couldn't use fiction to illuminate reality. The operation was exactly the contrary. To take out fiction. Out fiction, out fiction, out fiction. So, to, to finish, uh, every book has his own rules. And, and the uh, writer must find them. And that's not easy. That's not easy. Hello. I've got one question, but I want to clarify this first. Did I hear Javier say that he thought that Suarez was a bastard, a social climber and a Frankist? Adolfo Suarez, in my opinion, is the uh, Spanish politician that has been treated in the worst way in Spain when, when he was in power. He was destroyed, even worse, in my opinion, than Azaña. The opinion that had the whole country, or almost the whole, the whole country, was terrible. Uh, when he was in power, I was like 19, 20 years old, And for me, he was not. I mean, he was nothing. He was, he, was a, he was a traitor. He was a social climber. He was a political climber. He was, he was not a good politician. He was a general view at that moment. You know, you, you cannot imagine what people said at that moment. And that people who said awful, really awful things, for instance, well, we're not going to tell things they, they said about him, terrible things, are the same people that right now, when he died, They said he was wonderful and he was <laughs> a hero and a saint and whatever, right? In a ridiculous way, because he was, in my opinion, he was great. He did something impossible, in fact, in my opinion. Impossible, which was changing a dictatorship for a democracy without a war. That was theoretically impossible. When you go back to that time, and Paul knows it better than myself, when you go back to that time, you realize that around the world, Not, not, not in Spain, around the world, a lot of people thought that, well, these Spanish are going to go back to his national sport. And, and if you think, there's one thing which is very important. People have, have studied the, the, the transitions from dictatorship to democracy around the world, you know, Latin America, uh, the East of Europe, uh, all of them agree in the sense that the Spanish transition was the first one. In, in a lot of senses, what was the model for all this. Well, Paul knows this course better than me, but uh, it was very strange. It was a mixture of things, lazar, uh, a lot of things. So my opinion of Adolfo Suarez now is really high. But back then, it was really bad. And my question is, and I know I'm jumping a bit, but la ley de la memoria histórica, what is, what is your opinion, both of you, on the reality and the fiction of that? I don't think I don't think it was dangerous. I think it was inadequate. In a war, a lot of soldiers get killed, and that was the case in the Spanish Civil War. But in the Spanish Civil War, it was one of the f the first wars in which vast numbers of civilians, innocent civilians, were killed. Now there were innocent civilians killed on both sides uh, for for different reasons. Within the Republican zone, so we're talking geographically here, within the, within the area controlled by the Republic, give or take, I mean, with maybe 100 hours, give or take, 50,000 people were murdered behind the lines. Terrible figure, 50,000 people. 
behind the Francoist lines of those that we know of, and there's huge... I, mean, it's, 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 I could talk to you for the next two hours about the difficulties of how you find out how many people were killed. And you know, in order to give the figures, you have to have the names of the dead. We have the names of 130,000. But extrapolating from the places that no one knows anything about and so on, the figure has to be at least 150,000, and it might be 200,000 because so many people were killed in prisons in the most appalling conditions after the war. So the families of the 50,000 who were killed within the Republican zone, and again, why they were killed, I could again go into, but in the main, they weren't killed by the Republican authorities. They were killed by anarchists, by criminals who'd been let out of prisons, some by communists and socialists, but the bulk by common criminals and by anarchists. Because the Republican authorities tried to find out their names and inform the families and so on, and then, of course, when the Francoists won the war, these people were celebrated. Their lives were commemorated. They were celebrated. Their names written up in churches and so on. So the families had closure. I don't know how much of a consolation that was, but at least they had some form of closure. The dead were recognised and were celebrated. In the case of the at least 150,000, maybe 200,000, and it gets even more complicated about the Republicans because there's prisons, there's a million people in concentration camps, there's half a million people forced into exile. You know, there's so many awful tragedies that happen to the defeated. Until today, it's not been possible other than by small civilian initiatives, to do anything to commemorate them. The 150,000 people, according to Spanish law, are criminals. Again, I could give you a lecture on the, the Francoist law that led to these people being found guilty. I mean, most of them weren't even tried, but, but their crime was that of military rebellion. Now, what that meant was resisting the military rebellion, but that was deemed by Franco to be, to be military rebellion. And so the families have not had any redress. There's hundreds of thousands of families that don't even know where their dead are buried. And so, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, the fear inculcated during the Franco regime, which goes on to this day in, in some places, it was only really the grandchildren who, round about the turn of the century, really started pushing and creating what are called agrupaciones para la recuperación de la memoria histórica. I mean historical memory recovery groups, I suppose you'd call them. And that led, finally, to pressure for the socialist government to introduce the, the law of historical memory. But there's all kinds of problems about it, because effectively, I mean, to cut a very long story short, it put the responsibility for finding the dead, for excavations, for DNA testing and so on, onto municipal authorities. And in Spain, as here... The economic crisis has seen funds sucked away, so basically not happened. That's why I meant it was inadequate. Uh, to, to Javier, I, I very much enjoyed your work, and I just thought I would let you know that your work on the coup d'etat uh, was a subject of analysis in a special issue of a journal looking at literary journalism and the ethics of literary journalism, which, which I was co-editing. What the author said about that work and your work in general, was the way that you threw back at the reader the responsibility of working out 
what were the ethics of the situation, who was speaking and were they saying the truth or not. I'm curious to know what, what you think of that hypothesis. I'm not sure to understand the question, but if the question is that I give the responsibility to the reader, that's exactly what I think. Because I, ha I think that the reader has the responsibility. No, the reader creates the book. This week I read something by Paul Valéry. He says, masterpieces are not created by authors, but by readers. That's very intelligent. This book doesn't exist without the readers. It's the reader who creates the book. A book is like a partitura, how you say that? Musical score. Musical score. score. And every reader creates, interprets this musical score in his way. And that's the magic of literature. And that's why I think that ambiguity is the core of literature. Because ambiguity is the uh, space the author gives the reader to make the book his book. And that's, that's for me, the core of literature. That's the magic of literature also. Thank you very much. You said that um, there are about 30,000 books about the Spanish Civil War, um, about the same as the Second World War. And how many of those are written by Spaniards? And do you think that in the future, perhaps if it's not as many as perhaps foreign historians or foreign novelists who are kind of caught up in the romance of the Civil War, do you think more young Spanish writers are addressing the Civil War in their work? And in what way? The last time they were counted was in 1969. In 1969, there were supposedly 25,000. Now, I haven't counted them since because it is literally an avalanche. So it might be 40,000 for all I know. Now, the bulk of those books are written by Spaniards. The problem is that until 1975, in Spain, the only people who could write had to go through Francoist censorship. You know, a, lot of, a lot of what was published up to that stage was not really of a lot of use. Then there was the stuff that was published in exile by Republicans, and that obviously faced severe limitations. And one of the limitations, in fact, was that the Franco regime was homogenous. You know, it was a dictatorship. The Republic was a democracy. And at the end of the war, as, often, as always happens at the end of wars, everybody wanted to know who was to blame, and they all blamed everyone except themselves. So an awful lot of the work that was written by the Republicans in exile was extremely party pris, you know, that the anarchists blame the communists, the communists, etc., etc. And then foreign writers, of whom there weren't that many, but people like Hugh Thomas in this country, or Gabriel Jackson in America, and then later me and others, we had the advantage that, you know, we weren't part of it. And so, in a way, we were welcomed in a way that, for instance, the French are not interested in foreign writers about their history, Clearly, mistakenly, but anyway. Um, whereas in Spain, there is actually it's gone the other way. You know, there is an obsession with what foreigners write, and sometimes it's brilliant. I thank you. And other times it's rubbish. You know, but um, overall, there is now a generation of, of, of wonderful Spanish historians. I say young because they were young when they were students with me, and now they're in their you know middle fifties and so on. But one of the things that I tried to inculcate, because Spanish history writing, even serious stuff, was unbelievable. University theses were usually five volumes. 
they took no prisoners. No one was interested in the reader. The idea that the reader mattered just, just didn't figure. And this stuff was unspeakably unreadable. And one of the things I certainly tried to do with the Spaniards who came to study with me was to talk to them about the need to use their imagination. You know, the documents take you so far, and then you've got to start recreating imaginatively. And the idea of being readable, which was a sort of shocking notion, because in Spanish academe, until about 10 or 15 years ago, people in the arts or the humanities believed that, you know, that they had to be like scientists. And the only thing they knew about science was you can't understand it, and therefore they thought if they wrote in a way that was incomprehensible, they had somehow attained the status of scientists. But that's no longer the case. There are, I mean, I could give you lists, Santos Julián, Enrique Moradiellos, Julián Casanova. There's a whole series of really terrific historians writing in Spain now, some of whom are actually starting to get translated into English. As for the novelist, well, there are very few novels written in English about the Spanish Civil War that I know of. I mean, it, it's, it's a Spanish phenomenon, I think. Thanks. I'm not sure it's a good question, but are you guys both exorcists in some sense, that you're digging out the ghosts of the past in the hope of settling something and awaking us from the nightmare of history? Is that part of what you're trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I, going back to what Javier was saying before about how the past is always present. I mean, I think there comes a point when it isn't so much. I mean, I don't think Shakespeare's historical errors regarding Richard III matter so much. But stuff that, that you, know, you can remember and so on, I think, I think do. We should always remember Mao Zedong's remark when asked about the French Revolution, said it was too early to say. Yeah. Um, obviously, I try in my books to tell the truth. I try to make, and of course there's an opinion because it's like, you know, with, with a journalist, with a really good journalist, everything you write comes from what you see, what you read, and so on, and it passes through the filter of your own ethical system. It passes, through, you know, and again it goes back to what you were saying about a, a novelist. All the books are autobiographical, and in a way that's true of history books as well because they all pass through you. Now, you admit that, which an awful lot of historians don't, you admit that, but then you try to be as honest as possible about where you're coming from to footnote everything. So anyone who wants to know, how the hell could Preston possibly say that? You say, well, read the footnotes and make your own mind up. So, yeah, I, and, and given... I mean, I feel passionate about Spain and, 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 and the, the things that Spaniards have suffered. I don't feel that I'm a, you know, a completely sterile scientist i'm not a scientist i try to write the truth i try to be as thorough as is humanly possible with research but i'm very aware of the contemporary impact no i, I was remembering now a uh, conversation with anthony Weaver, who did the presentation of of the anatomy of moment and he told me exactly that he told me that french historians think about themselves as a scientist And he told me, if you say that here in, in England, they laugh at you. I mean, and that kind of scepticism is very healthy. It's, it's, it's very, very healthy, very honest. This is the English tradition, right? right? The British tradition, Gibbon and this kind of writing. So I, I'm sorry to say that I agree absolutely with Paul. I mean, well, I must stress the point that the British... Anglo-Saxon in general, but British historians have been really important for Spanish history. 
I mean, extremely important, essential, right? So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.